it costs a lot in terms of energy. Probably a small country is the total usage. The amount of energy that's consumed is staggering. Bitcoin detractors haven't done their homework. When you go and you look at places around the United States, you see companies like Great American Mining who are literally capturing gas flaring and on site, they're turning it into Bitcoin mining power. Bitcoin has this enormous contingent of really, really smart, sophisticated people. We became experts mining Bitcoin off of flare gas. So this is very much a viewpoint of like what the future should look like. How dare you? Welcome back to Gamcast. Always forget about that this meeting is being recorded. Welcome back to Gamcast. It's your host, Marty Ben. It's been a few weeks, but I'm very excited for today's episode. Sitting down with somebody who's trying to, another person who's trying to bring sense to the world as it relates to the quote-unquote climate emergency, Patrick Moore, prolific author, author excuse me, co-founder of Greenpeace. Uh, his latest book is Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom which I'm about three quarters of the way through. I'm very excited for the conversation. Patrick, thank you for joining us. Nice to be with you, Marty. Again. I know. Well, after our first conversation, well, that had to be a month ago now at this point. I'm very excited uh, to be speaking with you, especially considering everything that's going on in the world today as it relates to the climate emergency. We had recent reports from the IEA. Greta Thunberg was tweeting about them today. Uh, and it seems like there's a bunch of people posturing for uh, quote-unquote climate lockdowns uh, due to the apparent climate emergency. So I guess we just should jump right into it and, and talk about fake invisible catastrophes and threats of doom. Like, are we, uh, are we in the midst of a climate emergency, in your opinion? The glacier behind me doesn't think so. It's been there for... Uh... Good Lord knows, a, a couple of million years, and uh, through ice ages and glaciations and interglacial periods like the one we're in now, like actually we're in the warmest period now that we've been in for about close to a hundred thousand years, and uh, that's because we're in an interglacial period. There's been about forty of them mm -hmm. in this Pleistocene ice age that we're enjoying the uh, benefits of like huge massive piles of ice on both poles where nothing grows much uh, but at least there's polar bears and in the arctic and penguins in the antarctic but it's a pretty sparse situation in terms of look at a tropical rainforest and one thing i i explain to people is as you move from the tropical rainforest of the equator towards the north and south poles either way biodiversity drops off radically because nature doesn't like cold. There's a thing out now about the glaciers killing the glaciers, like as if they're alive and talking about the glaciers as if they're some kind of national treasure. They're just ice and they are preventing a forest from growing where they are. There's nothing really much alive where a glacier is. So let's stop talking about them as if they're some kind of national treasure. The national treasure is the forest at the lower altitude you can see in the background there where it's not as cold. Simple as that. So climate emergency is an insane term. We are in one of the coldest periods in the last 250 million years right now. Like it was warmer for 250 million years until this ice age set in two and a half million years ago. It's all on the internet. But the people who are calling a climate emergency, they don't care about anything that happened before 1850, like as if that's when the world began. No, it began 4.6 billion years ago and life began at least 3.5 billion years ago. And since then, there's actually been a history of climate on the planet, one that we know quite a bit about, at least going back half a billion years to when life proliferated in the Cambrian explosion in the sea. Like before about 450 million years ago, there was no life on the land of this planet. 
It was all in the sea. It had been there for three billion years. And suddenly life in the sea proliferated into multicellular organisms. I don't know how else to say it, larger things. Up until then, everything had been microscopic, one cell. It was like a pretty boring time for three billion years. Then suddenly multicellular life emerged. That's a whole story in itself, but it did. And bigger things emerged in the sea. If you want to read Stephen Jay Gould's wonderful life, you'll have the history of all of that and how it happened. He's a wonderful, he's, he's passed on now, but Stephen Jay Gould of Columbia University was one of the most important evolutionary biologists there are in the world. And he wrote this book for everybody to read about how life evolved from then till now. And we're living in a period of cold. It's called the Pleistocene Ice Age. This is not a warm period in the Earth's history. The warm period occurred beginning after the last Ice Age, which was called the Karoo. It ended 250 million years ago after 100 million years of Ice Age. That's how long that Ice Age was. Then it got warm and it stayed warm for the next nearly 250 million years until this ice age happened. And they, they say it happened beginning 2.6 million years ago, but it's kind of arbitrary because the temperature just went down. So they say here's where the ice age started, more or less when all the ice started to appear on the earth, especially in the Northern hemisphere. The Southern hemisphere actually iced up millions of years earlier because the southern hemisphere is colder than the northern hemisphere due to the fact that it is mostly ocean whereas the northern hemisphere is mostly land and land heats up easier than oceans do so there you go the main point being the idea that we're in a climate emergency is so stupid if you know the history of the climate because we're in a cold period, even in this interglacial period. It's all there in the record. The record is obtained beginning in 1958, the International Geophysical Year. Ships from many countries went out and drilled cores in the sediment of the bottom of the ocean. Those sediment cores tell us a lot about the history of climate going back half a billion years in some cases. So we do know a lot about the temperature trends, the trends in carbon dioxide and oxygen going back a long way. And if you think the world began in 1850 and this is a climate emergency, you're living in a complete fantasy world because this is not a climate emergency. It is a cool period in the history of the earth. And there's the glacier behind me to kind of prove it because I'm just barely halfway to the North Pole from the equator here on Vancouver Island. And that's only 6,000 foot mountain behind me. It's not even a very high mountain. And it's got a glacier on it that lasts all through the summer and has done, as I say, for at least 100,000 years. There you go. Uh, it's, it's just too easy to put down the idea that there's a climate emergency. Why is it almost heretical to put that your that those facts forward and to state your belief of of the state of climate, if you will, in today's day and age? Because because stories of the end time are for some reason more popular than stories of everything's going to be just groovy, and I, I don't know why that is. Except my only hypothesis, and I'm not a psychologist, but. I do believe that people who fear death project that on the world. And if you don't fear your own death like I don't, I don't know why anybody would fear their own death, but many people do because there's nothing you can do about it. And I was taught at a young age to worry about things you can do something about. You know, like you can do, like what kind of car you're going to drive. You can figure that out, whether you want an electric one or a gas one. You have that decision if you don't mind paying a lot more for the electric one. But uh, as far as having a choice about whether you're going to die or not, that's pretty obvious. And projecting that on the world, like how silly is it 
for someone to say the world is going to end in 10 years or 12, whatever AOC said, but now it's like nine since she said it three years ago or whatever. Um, how silly is that? Yet people take that seriously, especially young children. And then when you recruit young children like Greta Thunberg uh, to reinforce this amongst the youth that the world is going to end, and she acts like some kind of authority on the subject. This is actually evil because she is being used by adults. She didn't do this on her own. She's got parents who encouraged her into this, especially her mother. And then Al Gore comes along and adopts her. And he is certainly evil because he is actually promulgating, spreading this idea that the world is basically coming to an end for all intents and purposes. All, and, and for some reason, his uh, measure of the world coming to an end is the ice melting. I mean, that's not going to cause the world to come to an end. It's going to cause more life at the poles if the ice melts. Polar bears, let's just focus in on polar bears for a second. They would not exist if it wasn't for climate change. Climate change is the reason there are polar bears. Why? Because it got colder. Prior to this ice age that we're in now, when that glacier didn't exist up there 2.6 million years ago, there was no ice on the poles, on the Arctic. So how could there be polar bears if there was no ice? Because a polar bear is a species that has evolved to live in the ice areas and hunt seals through the ice, the holes where the seals come up to breathe and where they come up to give their birth to their offspring, they give birth on the ice. So that's easy pickings for a polar bear. And so that's why polar bears have a food supply is because of the seals that are under the ice swimming and eating fish. And so before the ice came, all there was was brown bears, what we call grizzly bears. Grizzly bears came across the land bridge 15,000 years ago, like humans did and moose did and uh, wolves did and caribou. They call them reindeer in the old world. They call grizzly bears European brown bears in the old world, but they are the same species. That species evolved into a polar bear because it got cold, because the climate changed from a warm period to a period where the poles were covered in ice. So climate change is real and brings about major changes, but it doesn't happen in four days or 10 years. That's just not the way the climate works. It, it, the Earth's system is a huge system with heat and cold and atmosphere and oceans and the oceans have a thousand times as much heat in them as the atmosphere does. So the earth doesn't just change overnight in its climate. It takes a long time. And we've seen since the last 300 years, since it got the coldest it's been in the last 10,000 years in the little ice age, because really there's been a 6,000 year slight cooling period over the last 6,000 years, up and down, up and down, up and down, but net down. We just happen to be in one of the 500 year periods of warming in the cycle that has been occurring for at least the last 3,000 years, the Minoan warm period, the Roman warm period, the medieval warm period a thousand years ago is when the Vikings colonized Greenland and farmed it. And then every one of them left as the little ice age came on peaking in around 1700. Then the earth started to have a, a warming again, one degree warming since then 1.2 Celsius. That is if you're working in Fahrenheit, it's like two degrees or a little more, not very much in 300 years. And we can expect if the cycle that has been happening for the last 3000 years continues, and they don't always because cycles change as time goes on. But if it does continue, we've got about another 200 years of slight warming until it changes back into a cooling period. And we don't want a cooling period. We want a warming period in order to have 
more food crops growing. You know, I'm in Canada and about 100 miles, 200 miles north of me, you can't grow much crops because it just gets too cold. Canadians are on this little band across the country right near the U.S. border. 95% of Canadians live within a couple hundred miles of the U.S. border. And north of that, it's too cold for agriculture. Like 90% of Canada is too cold to farm. If you live in the States, you don't have such places except for Alaska. So people have got to think about that. If the climate warms one degree Celsius, 1.6 degrees Fahrenheit, I think that is, we can farm 200 kilometers, 150 miles further north in Canada with one degree of warmth. With one degree of cooling, a lot of farms get wiped out because it's very sensitive what temperature regime you're in. We're right on the cusp, just north of here where I am. I'm in this beautiful valley, which is an agricultural area the, called the Comox Valley after the name of the First Nations or Native American people as you call them. And, and uh, it's a beautiful spot, but it's miserable weather all winter. We're just coming out of it now. And actually this is a typical June, which is nicknamed Juniuary because often we will, we will have a nice May where it warms up and the days are getting longer and everybody's outside. All of a sudden it's back down to where it's cold in the daytime. Right now we're in, you know, 60 degrees is the in the day. And at night it goes down to 35 or 40. That's not exactly tropical. And, you know, let's look at the concept of climate refugees. If there was a climate emergency, you'd think there would be a lot of people fleeing the warmer countries for the colder ones, like coming to Canada, for example. No, every winter, tens of thousands of Canadians flee to the warmer places. They're called snowbirds. They go to Florida, they go to Mexico, they go to the Caribbean, they go to... Asian tropical countries because it's nicer there where it's warmer. So we don't want a colder world. We want a warmer world. We don't want it to heat up to where it does cause damage to the biosphere, but that just isn't going to happen. There's no evidence of it even beginning to happen. The temperature increase that started 300 years ago is still on pretty much the same uh, trajectory, even with all the CO2 we've put into the atmosphere, the main impact of which has been more trees and more crops. It's the greening of the earth. Go to the NASA website, just Google NASA greening of the earth, and you will find a satellite photo of the whole planet showing that it is getting greener. And India and China are actually contributing more to this than any other countries the two most populous countries in the world are contributing more to the greening first because they're putting out more CO2 than anybody else, which is the cause of the greening because CO2 is plant food. It's the food for life, including ours. We should learn to think like plants because we depend on them absolutely and totally for our own existence. And the CO2 that they're putting out is causing their crops and trees, which are being grown more intensively than anywhere else in the world, because there's so many people, they need a lot of wood and they need a lot of food. So they're growing trees and food faster than anyone else on the planet, and thus pulling the CO2 down and making it into life, making it into plants and, and like trees and food, which are the two main kinds of plants that we depend on. There you go. Yeah, well, it's a beautiful world. It really is, but Patrick, if if the the Earth heats up anymore, if the climate gets hotter, that glacier behind you is going to melt, and everybody living on the coastal cities is going to get flooded out. You're gonna you're gonna drown out, and it, all the coastal elites. This cannot happen. The funny thing is, is that the sea level was higher during the last three interglacial periods than it is in this one. 
and they were warmer. So it isn't that simple. For one thing, where I live, the sea is actually falling. That's because there was a mile of ice, see where that glacier is, from the top of that mountain, except for the sharp parts on top. That's what was sticking out of the ice. But the ice layer 20,000 years ago was a mile deep. And that pushed the crust of the earth down across the whole of Canada, all through Scandinavia, Northern Russia. All those areas, the ice was so heavy that it actually pushes the crust of the earth down. And what we have today, even 20,000 years later, after the glaciers, those huge glaciers have melted, is what's called post-glacial rebound of the crust. So the land is rising faster than the sea is, which means there's a net drop in sea level. That's happening all around the very, very northern parts of the world. Now, it's also a fact that the sea is rising in New York and in Caracas, Venezuela, and all kinds of, all the places that were not covered in glaciers, although New York did have a glacier. It wasn't as big as the ones up here. It wasn't as thick as them. So that water is rising at a very slow rate, and it hasn't accelerated since we started putting CO2 in the atmosphere in earnest in 1950. Really, it was, people say 1850, but between 1850 and 1950, the amount of CO2 we put in the atmosphere was very small compared to what's happened post-World War II. And now it's larger than ever. And one would have expected, along with the exponential rise in CO2, to see a similar increase in sea level rise, but it hasn't And that's because the whole idea that CO2 will cause drastic warming has also not happened. The earth is, is actually in the last two years been cooling. Now, why it has been, I'm not one to speculate on the future of the climate because I know better. I don't like getting myself wrong 95% of the time predicting the future. So I stay away from that. But I talk about what other people are saying so that people have an idea about what, you know, the pundits are saying about the future. Al Gore is saying it's all going to hell. But other people are saying that basically the trend is fairly steady, both in temperature and in sea level rise. So yes, we can expect some sea level rise if the world warms up slightly more over the next 200 years. But I'll tell you two things. First, you won't have to run. It's rising at the rate of a couple of millimeters a year. So it isn't as if it's going to suddenly swamp your house overnight. You're gonna have some time to figure out what to do and the two choices you have when the sea level rises, which it has been doing, I mean, the sea was 400 feet lower at the height of the most recent glaciation, which peaked 20,000 years ago. Since then, the sea has risen 400 feet. And it basically did most of that up until about 7,000 years ago, when the glaciers were basically gone, the big ones. And since, since then, it's been pretty steady with slight rise, but ups and downs, as the earth has cooled and warmed, cooled and warmed through this interglacial period, there hasn't been that much change in the sea level for the last 10,000 years. But now it is rising slightly because we're in the modern warm period. And the two choices you can make are first, move to higher ground. That's been done all through history when sea levels rise and you have to move up. Sometimes sea levels fall, in which case you might have had a harbor that now is dry and not a harbor anymore. So these things just happen, not because of our CO2 emissions, but because of the change in climate, which is caused by so many different forces. And that's why I don't try to predict the future. The climate 
has so many variables. It's called multifactorial. It has like a hundred, a thousand different things that are changing, that can change. So that's very complicated in itself. But those factors are also not linear. They don't go in a straight line. They're non-linear. In other words, they have to have a very complicated formula to explain them. And most important, they're chaotic. So the climate is chaotic. Even the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change recognizes that. And actually, when something is chaotic, that means you can't predict it. That's why it's called chaotic, because it's unpredictable. So the climate is actually unpredictable. And the people who are predicting it are thinking they have a crystal ball or trying to convince you that they have a crystal ball, which is actually a mythical object. There is no such thing as a fortune teller with a crystal ball knowing the future. That's a fantasy. And it's also a fantasy that we can predict the climate with a computer. The computer is not a crystal ball. It is just a machine that whatever you put in at one end of it comes out the other end. And if you put the same thing in a thousand times, the same thing will come out the other end a thousand times. It has to do with knowing how chaos works, which we don't. Lots of books have been written about chaos. And it, it's very interesting. In, it's, in hydrodynamics, it's called turbulence. And turbulence is when the flow of water stops being laminar, which means it's smooth and goes like this, like the bow on the bow of a boat. That is turbulent, chaotic movement of water. You can't predict that with a computer. Well, if we know that climate is a multifactorial system that takes in many variables, why is there this hyper-focus on CO2 and CO2 emissions? And why are people... Because that, that, yeah, that's why I wrote my book. It's called Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. CO2 is invisible. It's a good thing or we couldn't see the mountain across the bay behind me. Because if the air was not invisible to our sight, and that's why sight evolved to be able to see through air, it's an interesting factor. But that's the way it is. And CO2 is invisible. Therefore, nobody can see what it's doing right? The greenhouse effect is invisible. The effect of CO2 on plant growth, the CO2 itself is invisible. The effect on plant growth is visible. We can measure it. We can also measure the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere with an instrument. But how many people have a CO2 meter in their home? And how many people would be able to make an educated judgment about what that CO2 reading means. I used to laugh at people who said that their plants liked, liked it when they talked to them. Like if you, some people go and sit next to their plants and talk to them, they probably don't have a lot of friends or something, but there they are. And uh, I laughed at that. Oh, yeah, right. The plants got your vibe coming into it or something, you know, makes it happy. Well, then I realized that when you're sitting next to your plant talking to it, you are breathing 40,000 parts per million of carbon dioxide on them, which is like super saturated fertilizer for a plant. The air has 400 parts per million of CO2 in it. And you're breathing a hundred times that. So yes, talking to your plants, get up real close, talk to the leaves, and you will make your plant grow faster and be more healthy. So it's, it's actually true that it's, your plants like it, even though I'm not sure what plants feel like when they like something, but they grow faster anyways. Sorry, change the subject. Oh, I forgot to mention the second choice you have, as opposed to moving to higher ground, if the sea level rises, is as I say, hire the Dutch. 25% of Holland is below sea level. So creating barriers to keep the sea out is an engineering fact 
It's been done in many parts of the world, but the Dutch are the real experts. So if for some reason Manhattan gets threatened, that would be a good place to build dikes because uh, there's so many people there and et cetera, et cetera. Another good place to build dikes is where the land rises very, very slowly from the sea. So by building a fairly small wall or dike, you can protect a lot of land from flooding. And we know how to do that. We know how to make concrete. Look at the infrastructure plan that's being proposed for the United States now. If you took that $2 trillion, you could protect a lot of land from flooding if there was a need to. But where, where actually are people being dispossessed? Whose homes are being lost to sea level rise? Not former President Obama's, and he just bought a $14 million house at Martha's Vineyard right next to the sea. He can't be too scared of sea level rise. He's probably looked at the graphs and realized that the sea might rise like four or five inches in the next while. Is he, is he going to uh, worry about that? No, he's not going to worry about that. It'll be long, he'll be long gone. Even if the sea does rise a little bit, he won't be here. His kids will have to figure it out. Or maybe they'll build a wall. Maybe they'll move. But they certainly will be able to afford to. But it isn't as if people are being inundated by the sea. And uh, that's just a fact. Well, considering all these facts, and you mentioned it earlier, there's other ways to steward and care about the environment. I mean, your career started as an individual is very passionate about environmental stewardship and making sure that we're taking care of the earth. Like, What is this hyper-focus, again, on carbon emissions? And that seems to be the only way in which the Davos class, World Economic Forum people, uh, the corporatocracy, the technocracy that exists in our world believes that we can help the environment and be good stewards of the earth. It, it doesn't really yeah, the, make sense to me. The truth is, beginning in the 1970s, we addressed most of the really pressing environmental issues. The first one was the threat of all-out hydrogen bomb war between the United States and then what was called the Soviet Union. The threat of all-out nuclear war would have destroyed civilization and left an awful mess in nature. But the main thing would have been destroying civilization because they weren't going to aim them at trees. They were going to aim them at cities. So we had a lot to do with preventing the arms race and the escalation in threats and talk and to the point where it could have come to where somebody said, okay, boom, and then a total global catastrophe. That didn't happen, and it doesn't look like it's going to anytime in the near future. Then we went on to stop the killing of 30,000 whales in the sea. And this didn't just save the whales. It also represented the stewardship of life on Earth, the, the caring for species. And so the, one of the reasons the rate of extinction is actually going down, which they don't like to let you know, is because people never cared about extinction before about 1920. The passenger pigeons extinction in North America woke people up because there's been very few species gone extinct on the continents. Almost all the species that have gone extinct in the last 500 years have been on islands due to the introduction of sp other species, snakes and rats and cats and foxes and diseases that weren't there before. These islands are so much more vulnerable than continents are because on continents, everything spreads around. On an island, you're surrounded by an ocean for hundreds of miles. And so if new species are introduced, they can gobble up other species pretty quick. And that, so when Europeans colonized most of the world, starting in 1500, they brought with them these foreign animals and plants to diseases. And that resulted in a huge 
spike of extinctions at that time. Well, it wasn't huge in terms of how many species there are, but it was hundreds. And that's not happening now because we have protection programs for every species that's endangered with extinction. That doesn't mean we're going to be able to stop all of them from going extinct necessarily, but we're sure doing a much better job of that than we were even 50 to 100 years ago. The air is much cleaner now than it was in the post-war world where there was no pollution control on vehicles or on factories. Now you can even burn coal clean. People don't like to hear that because they think coal is bad by nature, like it's dirty. Uh, just to talk about dirty for a minute. Dirt is where we grow all our food. Yes, you can get your pants dirty if you're farming around the dirt. And so you need to put them in the laundry. But it's not evil. Dirt is not evil. It's not bad. It is good. It's, it's what grows our food. So when somebody says dirty oil or dirty fossil fuels, they're not referring to earth, the dirt, the soil. What they're doing is they're using the word dirty as in dirty, rotten scoundrel or some such, like you dirty, 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 right? So they're not meaning soil. They're meaning a swear word, an epithet. So they're turning the word dirty into a negative concept and associating it with fossil fuels to make people think that fossil fuels are bad or even evil because of this dirty word. They do it with climate change denier too, right? They yes, exactly. With like Holocaust deniers, if you will. Precisely. And as you can see, I've explained why polar bears wouldn't exist if it weren't for climate change. I totally, of course, I accept climate change. It's been happening since the earth was created. We have seasons. How could you not accept climate change? Exactly. Uh, anybody who says well, climate change isn't happening is uh, not paying attention. So the idea of being a climate denier or a climate change denier is, again, just propaganda. They're using the word denier as a propaganda word. And so that and that's what propaganda is largely about, is associating fairly neutral words like climate change is a fairly neutral concept with a dirty word. And so, you know, they say dirty about certain races of people, right? They say dirty about people who live in Israel, for example, with a different word. So that is how people propagandize and try to influence the way other people think about that word that they're using, which wouldn't seem negative unless it had the word dirty or some other expletive associated with it. And you just have to be aware of that when people are talking. Uh, and in some ways, they, the modern movement against uh, denigrating people, it works both ways. I mean, I'm white and I can't help it. And so, you know, what are we going to do about that? Going to paint myself yellow? Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to be embarrassed that I am white. My family comes from working class farmers and foresters and miners, people who have been in drudgery for generations. We have no royalty. And even if we did, you know, is the, is the Queen of England an evil person? I don't think so. She's very white. And uh, this whole thing about whiteness is just too much. But, you know, the best thing that's happened to TV is Gutfeld. And I watch it every night, well, five nights a week now he's on. And he actually has been able to make entertainment out of this crazy world we're in now. And whether it's climate or BM, 
whatever it is, BLM and Antifa and all this, just make, making fun of it in a way that's entertaining and not racist. Uh, we, you know, the climate change issue was sort of not susceptible to this kind of uh, talk about being a denier and stuff like that at first. And all of a sudden, people like myself who have studied this subject for 50 years and understand a great deal about it and would be happy to engage in an educated conversation with anybody who is capable of doing that due to their knowledge of the world's climate and its history. But if climate by saying 97% of scientists believe in this. There's a massive consensus. I just changed the subject because that isn't even a valid point. It might be if you first made a strong case for CO2 being the main cause of the warming and the climate change of the earth over the last millions of years. But there is no case for that. So they just resort to claiming that there's a consensus, which is not a science word. It doesn't belong in science. Most discoveries are made by individuals like Darwin and Einstein and Mendel and Galileo. That's why their names come down through history because they as individuals made these discoveries. These discoveries weren't made by a committee. They weren't made by a Politburo. They weren't made by a Congress. They were made by individuals. Politics and science are completely separate. Politics is about consensus. That's where the word belongs. And in, and, and in social discussions, where you have a family around a table, you can come to consensus on something. You mean, and, and that's the area of policy, but the area of true facts is science. And so long as the science is providing good information to the people making the decisions about what to do next, you have a logical situation happening. But right now people are deciding that we should end the use of fossil fuels based on a consensus. There's no consensus amongst scientists that we are causing a climate emergency. Most of that consensus, as you can see just by reading, is with people who are uneducated in science, like Greta Thunberg and Al Gore. I mean, they're, they're the leaders of this. Great. They don't, they're not schooled in it. Well that, well, that leads us to an interesting part of this conversation which is if you look at the scientists, if you talk to scientists like yourself who have been studying this for decades and point out like, Hey, this is not what they're portraying it to be. Why are they portraying it this way? And so that's like, I wrote it in my newsletter last night, particularly around the world economic forum and their push and the EIA's push towards carbon neutral by 2050 or 2030, whatever it is now, they claim to be wanting to do this, uh, to save humanity, to help the poor, um, and to, to just make us better stewards of the environment overall is what they claim. But if you just look at what's going on, I mean, people have been saying, who was it? Obama's advisor in 1985 said there would be a billion climate deaths by 2020. Climate deaths fell by like 90% over that time period and population went exponential. Uh, they claim to want to help the poor, but if they get their way and are able to enact these policies that force us to transition to unreliable energy sources that's going to increase electricity prices and decrease reliability of electricity generation and delivery, which is arguably very bad for the poor, society overall in general. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the, the claim to help the environment and they don't describe the trade-offs that come with the solar and wind energy. Uh, they, they look at the end result of that supply chain, which is the solar panels and the wind turbine. Uh, but they don't talk about everything that came before that, which 
involves a lot of rare earth metal extraction, slave labor in some cases. And it doesn't seem, it's a, it's a look at what they do, not what they say type thing. They'll say these things that make you feel good. When you look at what they do, it, it doesn't seem like that. Is it, is it really about the climate? Is it really about stewardship? Or is it more about control over how humanity operates? Well, it's, it's uh, I think, entirely about control by creating a narrative that uh, makes people afraid. So, and, and it's not just fear, it's also guilt. Uh, combine those two, like you're driving your SUV down the freeway and you're afraid you're killing your grandchildren from the emissions of your SUV. And that makes you guilty. So fear and guilt combined is by far the best way to get people to open their wallets and send money to all the people who are faking these stories. Like it's, it's the activist community raising funds on doomsday. It's the politicians promising to save your grandchildren if you elect them. It's the media, of course, bringing in advertising revenue for the sensationalism stories that people tune in for. And then it's the scientists and it's the politicians who are buying the science. People don't realize that it's bureaucrats and politicians that are funding the scientists. That's where they get almost all their money is from taxpayers. And so the politicians are deciding what they want from the science community. And these days, if you don't put climate change in your proposal, you're not likely to get funded because that's all anybody's interested in now. Well, I guess the COVID thing has created another area of sensationalism, but it's nothing like the size of the climate situation that has evolved. And so now the journals, the science journals have been taken over by journalists where they used to be controlled by scientists so you have uh, basically a circle jerk situation of all these people reinforcing each other's scare stories. So that's the theme of my book, that all the scare stories are based on things that are either invisible or so remote that nobody can go and see it for themselves, like coral reefs and polar bears. Those are the two most iconic that we have in the media. And polar bears, no one can go to the Arctic and count all the polar bears unless you have huge money and airplanes and all the rest of it. And a few people have that. And now we have discovered, and it's been exposed. That's why you don't hear so much about polar bears the last couple of years. There's between 30 and 50,000 polar bears now where there was only about six to 8,000 in the early 70s when the polar nations all signed a treaty ending the unrestricted hunting of polar bears and how many people in the public know about that treaty it's never mentioned by coca-cola or by the greens so-called it's never mentioned that treaty is what prevented the decline of the polar bear because too many rugs were coming south to be put in front of fireplaces from people going north, hiring an Inuit guide and killing a couple of polar bears or three. And that ended in 1973 when the population had been declining for many, many years. Now it's risen to such a level that the Inuit people who live in the Arctic think there's too many of them. They're coming into their houses. They're actually killing some people. And so now the Inuit people have passed a polar bear management plan which is a big deal. They're now allowed to defend themselves from polar bears by law. That was not reported in a single newspaper in the world except in Nunavut where the Inuit people live. No one heard, even, has even heard about that any more than they heard about the treaty that was signed in 1973. So same with coral reefs, although we don't have people living on the coral reef like the people who are living with the polar bears. And they say the coral reefs are dying. Well, of course they're dying. Everything is dying. The people are dying. The forests are, the trees are dying, but new ones are being born in replace of them. 
and they are tricking everybody with the idea that when a piece of coral reef dies, that's the end of that coral reef. It's never coming back. And that's just a lie. The Great Barrier Reef and all the other big reefs in the warm oceans of the world, notice there's not too many coral reefs in Alaska or in Iceland. The coral reefs like the warmest waters in the world. That's why the most biodiverse coral reefs are in the Coral Triangle in Indonesia, which is the warmest ocean in the world. It's by far the most biodiverse, more biodiverse than the Great Barrier Reef or the Hawaiian Islands or anywhere else in the world because it is the warmest ocean in the world. And if the oceans warmed, those corals would spread out more. The, cor the Coral Triangle is kind of a sanctuary, whereas as the earth has cooled, the, coral the corals have congregated there because it's warmer. That's just a fact. It's in my book. Read my book, 11 chapters, basically proving that they are using invisible and remote subjects to scare you into thinking the world is coming to an end. And you have had personal experience. You explained it in your book, right? Your uh, property was in Southern California by the border of Mexico and Baja. No, it's in Baja itself. Baja. Uh, Southern, Southern Baja, Baja and California Sur. So was on, the, on the uh, east, yeah. sorry, on the uh, east coast of Baja, the Sea of Cortez, Mar de Cortez. It's a little village called Cabo Pulmo, which has the largest coral reef on the west coast of the Americas, just like Vancouver Island is the largest island on the west coast of the Americas. But uh, so it's kind of neat to be in two places that have the biggest thing of something. And uh, this coral reef is the biggest. There's, there's not many east coasts in the tropics of the west coast of the Americas, if you think about it from, from say, San Diego south to South America and down the coast of Argentina into Chile, there's, there's really no peninsulas or big islands to create an east coast. And corals don't like the west coast because the Pacific winds come in with massive waves and so corals can't really survive very well as reefs. In, on that side of the wind, but on the east side, which is the lee side, they can. And that's why Cabo Pulmo has this beautiful, huge coral reef that's attracting too many people. They've had to restrict the number of people that can dive on it. And uh, it's been made into a federal park and the fish have flourished on it because uh, it used to be overfished and it's a wonderful place to go. So if you wanna dive uh, in North America somewhere, well, it's actually Central America, I guess. I never understood whether Mexico was part of North America or Central America, one or the other. I think it's North. I don't think you get to say. Maybe both. Maybe both. Guatemala, Belize, El Salvador. That's where, yeah, I, it's true. Well, we have the North American Free Trade Agreement, or at least it used to be called that, and it's called something new now with the three countries of Mexico, Canada, and the United States. Anyways, Baja uh, is a beautiful part of the world. And uh, Cabo Pulmo is one of the prettiest arroyos or valleys uh, with water flowing into the Sea of Cortez that you could ever find. Yeah, but you describe in the book, right? There was like a storm that wiped out the, the reef, a hurricane possibly, or not a hurricane that seems too far west, but it, you describe of how it's been greatly replenished over the last two decades, correct? Yes, there was a, a rainstorm associated with a hurricane. We're in hurricane country there. And uh, it caused so much water to flow into the bay where this coral reef is that the top 15 feet or so became fresh water. And corals can't live in fresh water. And it was there, lasted for two or three days. So it killed all the coral above 15 feet to the surface. It was a an awful event, but it was a natural event. Some people will say, oh, it's only because of climate change there was so much rain. But this happens, this kind of thing happens. And it's only taken now, that was in, in uh, 2003. So it's less than 20 years since that happened. And basically the coral has recolonized everywhere that it was wiped out. It hasn't in some places, it's still only 
but it's coming back. And, you know, to listen to people today, once a coral is dead, well, that's the end of the coral reef because it's too hot now for coral to grow. And in fact, Cabo Pulmo is a place where it's marginal for coral because it isn't warm enough for, a, for anywhere near the level of biodiversity that you would get deeper into the tropics, which is where corals really like it. Yeah. And then you had a recent instance in Australia, correct, with a, a professor who's been studying the Great Barrier Reef his whole career, and he came out publicly and stated, having observed this over the course of decades, the, the reef is actually growing, it's not dying. He got fired for even bringing that fact up, for, for reporting the facts back to his university. Well, he got fired because the people who are claiming that the Great Barrier Reef is dying, that puts in jeopardy their half billion dollars in uh, funding. And so th th there's a lot at stake. So Peter Ridd, Dr. Peter Ridd, 30 years a tenured professor, at James Cook University in Queensland, which is the area where the Great Barrier Reef is offshore from, uh, was fired by the professors for disagreeing with his colleagues. That's all he did was disagree with them. And first they tried to put a gag order on him. They said, you can't talk about the fact that we are investigating what you are doing. You can't even tell your wife. So they found out by, then they, 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 they took his email, they somehow got his emails and found out that he had talked to his wife about it on an email and fired him. And so this is coming before the highest court in Australia on June the 23rd. It's been through two levels of court. The first court sided with him and awarded him $1.3 million in damages and to be reinstated. The second court found in favor of the university. So this is in the, the world today, this is one of the biggest cases dealing with academic freedom and freedom of speech in the university context, but it applies widely because if there, if it isn't a lot, if you're not allowed to have free speech in a university, like where can you have it? And so, He's now going before the high court on June the 23rd. He's had to raise over a million dollars from GoFundMe during this period. He's done it. Everybody wants him to win. And it depends on what the high court says. If the high court finds against him, it means the end of academic freedom in Australia and may well spread to the rest of the English speaking world. And then who knows where? So we have to really hope that Peter Ridd wins this case because, and he's got good, the best legal advice he can find. But the way the politics is going now, uh, there seems to be a fairly strong movement towards squelching free speech. And hopefully the judges on the highest court, the equivalent of the Supreme Court, but they call it the high court, uh, hopefully those judges have better sense than to threaten academic freedom and freedom of speech in not just Australia, but in the world. Well, that's why I'm very excited to have you on here because we need to get this message out. Because like I said, they're, they're already starting to talk about climate lockdowns and you have the, the corporatocracy of the world, the Coca-Colas, the Exxons, BPs, Procter and Gamble's of the world signing on to these treaties. It's quote-unquote treaties these um, initiatives if you will to make us carbon neutral which doesn't make any sense on its face but they're willing as to go as far as to have economic lockdowns in the name of climate change uh, to go as far as to prevent people from eating red meat in the name of climate change and to go as far as to limit electricity usage per per family to stop climate change. Again, this seems, I don't get too conspiratorial, but I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think if you can, again, look at what these people do and not what they say, it's a bunch of communists who want to have top-down control of the global economy. Um, and they're basically forcing the common man 
throughout the Western world and beyond into a, a new neo feudalist regime, if you will. They, they want to bring yeah, that the, the odd thing is they want to take things away from people rather than making new things that make life better and make the environment better, which we've done so much of over the years. That's the, that's the part that I, I dislike that intensely. They want to shut you up. They want to take your stuff away. Uh, they just basically want to, to make you know that they're in charge and the way they express that is by making your life more miserable. So uh, I will fight that tooth and claw till the day I die. Uh, I wish I was young again. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes I don't wish I was young again because I'm going to have to live longer through whatever this next stage is. Uh, but I'm I'm an optimistic person, and I I hope that we will be able to change the situation and and get out of this uh, headspace that people are, are trying to push on us. How do you, how do you think we best do that to anybody listening to this? What would you recommend? Read my book. <laughs> That's the best advice I have. It's 50 years of learning in 208 pages. I could have written a 400 page book, but I tried to make it concise enough I didn't include every issue I could have. I just included the 11 issues that I thought would resonate best with people. It's written in language that anyone can understand. If you've been able to understand me on this podcast, you will be able to understand my book. And it has over 100 color plates with illustrations, graphs, and photographs to help you understand the text more uh, and you'll come away from reading it with a different perspective, I guarantee it, unless you are completely blind to knowledge and uh, new ideas, because it's full of them. And I think if you go to amazon.com and read the reviews, there's over 600 five-star reviews already on my book, and it's only been out a few months. And it is selling quite briskly and has been number one and two in science and ecology and environment uh, on amazon.com and amazon.ca. That's the Canadian site. So uh, take a look at it. It's on easy to review it. There's a good synopsis of what the book's about. And there's all these reviews that you won't have time to read them all. But if you just read the first batch, you'll see how uh, well it has gone over with people who've actually read it. And, uh, how are we doing? We're doing good. I'm looking for a tweet because there was somebody who um, who called you out in my um, in my Twitter account as an eco terrorist, and I just wanted to see it because I was I was saying you know, I was Me an eco terrorist. Yes, he called you an eco terrorist because you're spreading misinformation about climate change. Um, That's not what terrorists do. Terrorists shoot rockets into other countries and kill people. Uh, terrorists usually have guns. Uh, I don't own a gun, uh, but Canada is sort of like that because um, I'm not a hunter. I'm a fisherman uh, and uh, I'm certainly not a terrorist. I, I, I think I can, I can confirm. I think, I think maybe there's a certain amount of twisting of the language going on there. All right. A lot of, a lot of language twisting, a lot of, uh, failing to disclose trade-offs or financial incentives behind studies, initiatives. And I'm happy that you exist uh, and that you're here with us and that you wrote your book. Um, again, Fake Invisible Catastrophes, Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. You can find it on Amazon. But I think it's important to get your message out there, Patrick. And I think we need to embolden more individuals to speak Thanks, up. Thanks, Marty. Yeah, I, it is true. We need a lot more education. I mean, the, the society has been pretty much dumbed down in a lot of levels. And is it because of decadence? Is, it, is this the you know, fall of the Roman Empire syndrome where everybody's so rich they don't have to think anymore? Uh, there is that aspect uh, to consider. 
And like people who live in India and China even are working hard every day, most of them. And some of them are doing it under circumstances that we would consider illegal, like almost like slavery. So buck up everybody. We've got the best situation that has ever existed on the face of the earth going here and we can make it better. And there's too many people trying to make it worse. That's not a good idea, especially for the poor. What the, what the Greens are proposing is so elitist and so damning to society and especially the people at the bottom of the rung. They are the ones who are threatening the well-being of the poorest in our society. Because you, you can't just make everything more expensive and expect that it isn't going to affect people. It is going to affect people and it's going to affect most of the people who can't afford for things to be more expensive. And guess who that is? So, you know, think about it. Yeah, the Green Movement's an elitist racist movement. It is indeed. Yeah, anti-racism means racism now. Apparently, I am the object of racists because I'm white. And that makes me mad. So yeah. get off it. Me as now. well. I'm a white, blonde hair, blue eyed yeah. gentleman. You're white? <laughs> I wouldn't have, I'd never have thought so. That's the, that's the thing. They divide and conquer. They divide on climate. <laughs> and like you see, yeah. you choose things that make people emotional, fearful, angry, sad. Climate and race, uh, two very strong. Climate, race, disease, three very strong themes. To, yeah. To, Mostly makes me laugh at them for right. being so stupid. Right. Smarten up out there. Get real. Get the book. Don't listen to Fauci. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I got to go. Patrick, it was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you can follow Very you, nice. you can follow Patrick on Twitter at EcoSense, correct? Uh, EcoSense Now. EcoSense Now. Yeah. Follow him on Twitter. Pick up the book. We'll get, we're going to link to it in the show notes. And I appreciate your time. I hope we can do this at some point again in the future. Here's my son. Thanks a lot, Marty. Hey, you got a buddy coming up behind you there. Yeah. Can you say hi? Hi. Can you say hi? Hi and goodbye. Yeah, he's a racist too. We'll see you guys. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. See ya. Thanks a lot, Marty. Thank you.